I'm Jonathan Bastian, and this is KCRW's Foxhole, finding shelter in science, philosophy, and faith. This week, we explore the theme of impermanence. For decades, physicist Brian Greene worked on discovering laws of the universe that would outlive him. But when he had a revelation that everything is subject to change, he started looking for meaning in the present, everyday world around him. I was getting there from a cosmological perspective to focus on the here and now as that is the only place in which value and meaning can actually have an anchor. And then the contemplative perspective on impermanence from a Buddhist teacher and artist. The changing nature of reality impacts us. It impacts us in the sense of who we think we are. It impacts us in our sense of everything we assume about the world. How to live with change in this tenuous moment. That's all coming up on KCRW's Foxhole. The coronavirus has been a shocking reminder that things can change, fast and unexpectedly. And as much as we look for stability, the world doesn't always work that way. In recent years, this has been heavily on the mind of theoretical physicist Brian Greene at Columbia University. You might know Green from his best-selling books like The Elegant Universe, which was adapted into a program on PBS. His newest book is perhaps his most personal. It's called Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. Using the law of physics, Green explains that ultimately, the universe will not be able to host human life in the future. And therefore, all the great discoveries of man are impermanent. This leads Green into a deeper conversation about finding meaning now, knowing that nothing will last the test of time. Brian Green, thanks for joining us on KCRW. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, Brian, here we are as the coronavirus continues to change, you know, not just our daily life, but I think for a lot of people, how we think about life and how we understand the fragility of things around us and how quickly it, it can all change. I wonder for you, when, when this theme of impermanence really started to kind of um, rise up in you? I think at some level it was probably always with me, and I think, frankly, it's always with everyone. I think at various levels of conscious awareness, we know that we are impermanent. We know that our lives are finite, and it hits us in different ways at different times, you know, depending upon where we are mentally, spiritually, and what's happening in the world around us. Now, for me in particular, when I was in college and was starting to seriously think about, you know, what I wanted to do, I, I had a conversation with, uh, with a friend who was really a mentor of mine as I was growing up. He was a mathematician, and he said to me that, he said he, said he does mathematics because once you prove a theorem in mathematics, it's true forever. Yeah. It will never not be true. And that just hit me as like a powerful moment when I recognized that you can't say that about many things in the world. And, and that's when I started to really think about what do we have available in this life that does transcend our own impermanence. Right. And, and I know there was another book that you were reading. Uh, I don't know if it was around the same time, but it was by Ernest Becker. I, it's, it's interesting. This is a book that I had to even look up myself, but it's pretty interesting. Can you, can you tell us what that book is called and kind of the impact it made on you? Yeah, it was more or less the same time. I became sort of deeply obsessed with these issues of, of mortality and impermanence. And I came upon a book by, as you say, it's by Ernest Becker. It's called The Denial of Death. 
And Becker was this, first of all, wonderful writer. The book won the Pulitzer Prize in the 70s. And he was channeling, in some sense, the ideas initially developed by Otto Rank, who was one of the early Freudians who ultimately broke with Freud. But, but Becker, in developing Rank's ideas, just so poetically and so beautifully laid out the tension that we humans are under all the time because mm -hmm. we have these minds that can soar to the edge of the cosmos the way it can with an Albert Einstein. We have these minds that can produce these spectacular works of literature and art and beauty, but all within the recognition that after a finite duration on this planet, we are, as Becker put it, we are put into the ground to decay and rot forever. And so mm. it's this notion of decay and rot is your ultimate right. destiny versus the creative spirit that we humans are able to use to transcend the mortal awareness and mortal existence. So at one and the same time, you can soar to the edge of the universe, but you're also going to be turned into food for worms. Right. And, and I mean, I'm trying to think about this in your life right now. I mean, as you go about kind of a lot of the work you've done and the research you've done, which which kind of would be labeled under that 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 kind of permanence, that idea that you're creating something that will outlive you. I mean, I, I get a sense that 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 was an important part of who you were or where you were going. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, there was definitely the sensibility that if you can uncover the deep laws of the universe, you are touching something that was always true long before there was even life in the universe and will always be true even long after life has left this universe. And one of the things I do in the book is I explore that idea with a greater attention to the details than I possibly could have when I was, you know, in my early 20s. And, you know, the book is an exploration of the degree to which that is actually true, right? Mm. Does, uh, does a law of physics, does quantum mechanics, I mean, it exists independently of human beings, but does it have any meaning or value or purpose in the absence of human beings or in the absence of another life form that can contemplate it? I mean, what does, what does a deep equation mean? if there isn't any conscious awareness to contemplate it. So yeah. in a sense, in, in a sense, you know, certainly I, I gain a certain kind of fulfillment when I say read and deeply study Einstein's equations of the general theory of relativity. They're talking about black holes and space and time and all the things that transcend little life forms crawling around on planet Earth. But at the same time, I recognize that in the far future, when, and you can argue, and I do this in the book, you can argue that it's quite likely that there won't be any life forms in the very far future, huge timescales. And without life forms to contemplate Einstein's equations of the general theory of relativity, it's hard for me to see that they really have any standing in terms of the permanence that we as living creatures aspire to. Right. And I wonder if you could just go a little bit further and clarify this for us uh, in the simplest terms possible. I mean, you know, I've heard that the universe will change, that perhaps we may not uh, see human life as we see it now long into the future. But, but if you could tell us, I mean, 
what is going to happen a long ways out? What are we talking about here such that some of these uh, theorems we're coming up with now may not be uh, may not be relevant or there may not be humans to observe them? What's going to happen? Yeah, sure. You know, I like to think about the unfolding of cosmic history as a dance between two forces. And the forces are the force of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. I think many people have at least heard of that idea, which says that there's an overwhelming tendency of everything in the universe to disintegrate, to fall apart, to wither away. There's a drive from order toward disorder that we understand fairly well using the laws of physics, and we also understand it fairly well at an intuitive level. You look around the world, and things are always heading in that direction of disintegration. At the same time, there's another force, and that's the force of evolution, which tends to take material objects and through the process of natural selection, refine them into ever more complex and ever more efficient collections that are ever better able to survive in an ever-changing world. And we as human beings, we are the result of evolution and that evolutionary process allows us to stave off entropic decay for a period of time. That's what we do as living beings. We take in ordered structures from the world and we release entropy to the environment, allowing our own entropy to stay low. But you can argue that in the far future, the balance of power is going to shift to entropy. And in the very far future, entropy will win this battle. So degradation is ultimately what's in store. Stars ultimately will fall apart. Planets will fall apart. Living systems will fall apart into their constituent particles. And indeed, as I do in the book, you can argue that in roughly, you can't give precise time frames, but in about 10 to the 50 years, that is a huge number. We're now sure. 10 to the 10 years from the Big Bang. So in 10 to the 50 years, and that 40 is in the exponent, so it's not like 40 years from now, it's you know 10 to the 40 years beyond you know multiplication. Uh, anything that we've experienced so far is a huge factor of time. But over those timescales, the universe, it turns out, will no longer be able to accept the entropic waste that even the very process of thought requires. Thought is a physical process. It emits entropy, it emits waste, it creates disorder. And the universe will not be able to absorb that disorder. So basically, any thinking being that tries to think one more thought will fry in the waste mm. produced by the very process of thought itself. It will overheat and die. And so in that sense, life and thought are likely a finite process in a universe that itself could be infinite. Mm. And I mean, what was it like for you uh, to kind of come to, to grips with this? I mean, I'd imagine th there must have been just some kind of an existential awakening of like, okay, well, here I have, I've, I've been working on what I thought were these, you know, permanent laws, but but this is going to look radically different a long, a long time from now. But still, I, I'd imagine there was some kind of an internal shift that took place in you. There was, without a doubt. And, you know, there's some physicists who would roll their eyes at the kind of conversation that we're having now and say, look, the timescales that you're thinking about are so enormous that they become irrelevant to any human being. They're just too long to worry about. And I have to tell mm -hmm. you, I disagree. 
with that perspective because to my mind, regardless of how long the timescales are, if you recognize that we occupy a finite part of that, you realize that for the bulk of cosmic history until today, there was no life. And for the bulk of the cosmic history that will play out in the future, there will be no life. So how could that not impact your view of how you fit into the cosmic unfolding? And for me, definitely, there was a, a period of time, you know, I don't want to overemphasize or maybe exaggerate, but it was kind of a dark period for me. Mm. I definitely went through a dark stance where the kind of permanence that I imagined that, in, and I'm not even trying to say that my own work would be permanent. That's, that's, that's the icing on the cake. But to immerse yourself in ideas that you think are touching on the permanent, that are transcending human impermanence, whether it's quantum mechanics or relativity or what have you, that was how I lived my life for, for many decades. And then to recognize that that perspective is probably not right what was a shift but then i had this other moment and i talk about this in the book it was for me a weird moment an unfamiliar moment where of all places i, I was sitting in a starbucks right i mean right. I'm talking about big ideas and i was like <laughs> in this you know bastion of american consumerism you know fast food yeah. in essence and i was sitting there and i had this this epiphany kind of i don't know like i even wondered if my 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 Earl Grey may have had some bad soy milk or something. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't figure it out. But I had this shift that happened inside of me where I just sort of felt like a, a change in perspective from grasping for a fleeting and ephemeral future that's forever receding to just focusing on the here and now and using my life as a physicist to understand the totality of the unfolding from the beginning to the formation of stars and planets and people and on to their destruction in the far future, but not to look to the far future for value and purpose, rather to do what we've heard from mindfulness teachers and sages and philosophers across the ages, but I was getting there from a cosmological perspective to focus on the here and now as that is the only place in which value and meaning can actually have an anchor because value and meaning are artificial. They're manufactured. They're human constructs, and that doesn't diminish them. To me, it grandizes them because we are the force that yields meaning and purpose, and that meaning and purpose is to be found right here and right now. I mean, so it sounds like in some ways you had to kind of shift the perspective inwards, if I'm hearing this correctly as well. I mean, and, and asking yourself, what is of worth in the time that I have now? What what can I grasp onto? And Yeah, well, I, well, I totally agree with that. And I just want to pick up on it because, you know, as a, as a scientist, as a physicist, we are trained through years of study in school to try to pull the subjective out of our work. The goal, mm. say, as a physicist, is to understand the objective reality, the things out there that everyone will agree on, whether you're doing your physics in New York City or if you're doing it in Tokyo or if you're doing it in Nigeria, it doesn't matter because you're focusing upon qualities of the world that transcend who you are, where you are, or anything of the moment. And, and yes, my, my training was just like that, and the shift that you described is exactly right. I was shifting to allowing the inner world of conscious experience, the inner world 
of self-reflection to be joined within my own professional journey in a deeper way than I had ever allowed it in the past. And so I now recognize, and look, I've known this for a long time, but I hadn't really felt it. You know, I felt more fully than ever before that the work of a physicist is to illuminate the external objective world, but that's only part of the story. And the other part of the story, the inner world of experience, needs to have as vital a part in the full story that we tell ourselves. Because that full story is a deeply human story, and it's one that needs to blend the objective and the subjective in a way that illuminates what it means to be human under the brightest possible light. You know, as you as you say this, my mind, when I think of the different religious traditions, uh, it goes towards Buddhism in a way, um, which which I think grasps the impermanence of things, which understands that we are the product of causes and conditions. And, and in this book, you tell this, this, this kind of wonderful story about a conversation you had with the Dalai Lama, which I think kind of encapsulates what you just said. Can you tell us what that interaction was like and what he told you? Yeah, for sure. I was asked to speak at a, a conference down in, I believe it was Houston, and I was not in conversation with the Dalai Lama per se in this public forum, but the organizers asked me if I would ask the Dalai Lama some questions at the conclusion of his part of the program, and right, I, of right. course, was happy to do so. And I asked him, you know, a question that I've been thinking about for a long time because I said, look, there are so many books that are written that suggest that modern physics is rediscovering ideas that were developed years ago, ages ago in, in the Far East. You know, you have books like the Tao of Physics and the Dancing Wooly Masters, and I never really saw much in those books. So I asked him, mm. what do you think? <laughs> you know, are we physicists <laughs> just rediscovering the things that have been well known to people who say were from the Buddhist tradition or other traditions that originated in the Far East? And he said, no, I do not think that that is what you physicists are doing. He says, what you physicists are doing is leading the way to understanding the true nature of the objective world. And we as Buddhists need to follow you in the discoveries that you are making because we want our philosophy, our perspective, our tradition to be attuned and aligned with the true nature of the world. And that's what you guys are providing. He said, what we have to offer is a deeper understanding of consciousness. And he says, hmm. that's where I think that the Western traditions can learn a lot from what, say, happened in the Eastern traditions. It's in the level of conscious awareness. Does that resonate with you? I mean, because we're, we're, we're talking about this kind of shift inward here. And I know you write about consciousness in this book as well. But I mean, did, did those words stay with you as something you felt uh, as true? Well, I, I was deeply moved by them because... Here was a leader of a world tradition who was not afraid to say that science needs to lead the way in, in certain kinds of, of pathways toward truth. And, you know, can you imagine, you know, other traditions saying that? It would be, it would be a powerful moment if all the world's, say, philosophies and religions recognize that when it comes to understanding the particles and the forces and the cosmological unfolding, that science is where you turn. That would be a very powerful move. So mm. I, was, I was deeply moved by, by what he said. And yes, it has stuck with me in the sense that the inward journey 
is one that I do not feel that science is well equipped to guide us on. You know, William James, and I quote him in the in the book as well, I think said this best. Back in in 1903-1904, William James gave some lectures, I believe they were in Scotland. And of course, William James, great scientist, great, you know, psychologist. Right. And 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 so he writes a book that isn't read as much as I think it should be called, you know, the varieties of religious experience. Sure. And in that, in that book, you know, he goes through the various ways in which we can be religious, that we can be spiritual beings while taking this from the standpoint of a scientist, scientific perspective. And he ends the book by basically saying something along the lines of what we've been describing. He says, look, science is really good at describing that external world, but that's not all there is. And he, and he goes into this beautiful poetic description where he, he talks about, you know, the, the, the poetry of the universe. He talks about, you know, the, the lyrical qualities of the summer rain. He talks about, you know, the, the breathtaking qualities of, of the eternal stars. And, mm. and within that, he says that we need to recognize that that inner response to the external world is as necessary and as powerful as our description in a scientific language of the external world. And that, to me, is what the spiritual journey is all about. It's trying to understand as deeply as we possibly can how we respond to the external world. And that is a deeply personal journey, a deeply mm. subjective journey, not one that really fits within the rubric of scientific investigation. How has this kind of changed your life or how you spend your time or your day? I mean, did you find yourself kind of being drawn to, I don't know, meditation or to, to could be poetry, could be, it could be more art. I don't know. I mean, what yeah. do you see happening in, your, in yourself? Well, there definitely was a time, and this to me has really been a, a personal journey that's played out over decades too. But, you know, when I reflect back on my perspective as a kid, the only thing that mattered to me were mathematical equations. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was five and six years old, that was it. I just wanted to, I mean, my dad would set me 30 digit by 30 digit multiplication problems. And that's how I'd spend the weekend as a kid. I just loved the fact that you could create new patterns of mathematical symbols by just combining them in a way that nobody had ever combined them before. And they hadn't done it, that combination because nobody cared. Nobody should mm. care. But, but the fact that you could create something new it was to me deeply impactful. I, and I hated to read as a kid. Yeah. And, and and frankly, even when I got to college, when I would go to the bookstore to buy a textbook for a science course, if it was chock full of equations, I would breathe a sigh of relief. It was full of words. I'd be like, oh, no. Oh, no. Not a textbook that has all these words, <laughs> sure. you know. Right. You know. But, but you know, over the years, I've, I've radically shifted from that. To me, you know, I got there late. But the worlds of literature, the worlds of poetry, the world of art. And look, my dad was a composer, so I was embedded in the world of yeah. music from a young age. But I didn't pursue it, you know. But the worlds of music, these are things which now I consider to be the, the most precious of, of, of human undertakings. And especially when you can blend them with the undertaking of trying to understand the objective world, there can be magical unions between them. And, and in terms of how has it affected my life, well, I've now I've written stage pieces. I've, I've collaborated with Philip Glass mm. 
on on a space opera where a boy goes to a black hole. You know, we had a PBS special last May where we did an onstage exploration of Einstein's discovery of the general theory of relativity, but in a theatrical format. And so to me, the blending of these worlds is the place where I I get the greatest joy and the, and the greatest gratification. You know, it makes me also wonder if we can just go to the to one of the, the the scarier parts of life. How do you think about the end of life for yourself as you kind of approach the fact that you too will at some point die? And uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about permanence and impermanence. I'm just curious, what, what what do you think about now when when we kind of talk talk about that subject? Well, I can't help having a kind of reaction that I imagine is instilled in me and everyone else at some level by Mm. evolution, right? I mean, I, you know, going back to Ernest Becker, I do find it terrifying to imagine that everything that I cared about and everything that I've worked on and, you know, family, friends, kids, that that it all will be gone. And if I allow myself to to fully focus on just that, I, 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 I can find myself slipping back into a dark place. But at the same time, I have found a way to refine my reaction to that recognition merely by spending a lot of time thinking about it and thinking about it in the ways that, that we've been in discussing in our conversation here. And when I think about human life and the human contribution to understanding of the world and the universe within the grand cosmological unfolding... And this really is what drove me to write the book. I have to tell you, when I think about we fitting in in the progression from the Big Bang to the disintegration of stars and galaxies, I see it in a different way. I see human life as the product of mindless, purposeless laws of physics that have played out from the Big Bang with a huge array of quantum processes stretching from the beginning until now. Each of those quantum processes could have turned out differently. It could have turned out that way instead of this way, yielding right. a universe in which we wouldn't be here. And so kind of think about it as set against astounding odds. We are here. And that fills me with a deep sense of gratitude and a, and a deep sense of reverence. And it's not only gratitude and reverence for the mere fact of existence. It's gratitude and reverence for the fact that our particular collection of particles can do things, Right. We can contemplate the world. We can create beauty, right? It's our collections of particles that built the pyramids, right? That, 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 that wrote Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. It was a collection of particles like us. It's a collection of particles that wrote Macbeth and Julius Caesar and Hamlet. And, and the fact that mere collections of particles governed by physical law can do those things, I just find it deeply thrilling. And it gives me a sense of reverence for being here and a thankfulness even in the face of our fleeting existence. Well, Brian Green, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us here on KCRW. Um, Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. This is KCRW's Foxhole. I'm Jonathan Bastian. We'll now continue with our theme of impermanence. If we accept Brian Greene's idea that all we have is the here and now, and that it's up to us to make meaning in our lives, how exactly do we go about doing that? Well, one way is to make things we care about, like art or writing or other projects. One person who's made a life doing just that is Stephen Batchelor. 
He's an author, Buddhist teacher, and visual artist who was raised in the UK and currently lives in France, where he joins us now. Stephen, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, Jonathan. And Lita Albuquerque is a visual artist in Los Angeles whose acclaimed ephemeral art pieces touch on our exact theme today. Lita, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted and excited to be on the phone with someone in France. That's extraordinary. (laughs) This is the world we live in right now. Yes, I love it. Lita, let's start with you here. Um, You had a chance to listen to a little bit of the conversation with Brian Greene. We talked about a lot of things. Impermanence kept coming up. I I wonder just how you reacted to it, listening to it. Well, it's, it's a subject dear to my heart. It's something I have thought a lot about. I have to admit that I was um, taken off my guard when he spoke about thoughts as being impermanent as well, mm. and that they are matter and that they will disappear as well. And at first, it really threw me for a loop in that I really do believe in the in consciousness uh, afterlife, um, and from the point of view of what he was talking about, which is this, you know, massive time scale of pre, uh, big, big bang to after when, when no cosmos exists. I still like to think in terms of consciousness being still existing, mm-hmm. that in a different form, that it's not a thought form, but it becomes a different form, which is in a way a melding of what he talked about in the end when he talked about the difference between the objective and the subjective. Uh, I think we're, we're really entering such a phenomenal phase of what cultural historian Thomas Berry talks about the new story, that we're at the end of the old story that we've had for the last 2,000 years, that it's no longer viable, and that we need to now connect into the new story, which has to do with ourselves in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, when Brian Green talks about when the cosmo- cosmos itself is no longer, then what happens? Um, the, I mean, he doesn't say that, but that's, I'm, I'm questioning that what happens when the cosmos itself is no longer. I still believe in, in some kind of a form uh, that exists on some other level yeah. that has to do a different kind of thought form that has been created here through the body and our relationship to the cosmos. Well, well, Stephen Batchelor, I'll let you pick up on this. I know there was a lot of discussion of consciousness, and I know that's a big topic in Buddhism as well. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts kind of on that matter in, in relationship to this conversation? Um, well, uh, to me, the idea of, of, of consciousness or a soul or whatever it is, uh, surviving uh, physical death and continuing some other form, I mean, that may be the case. I have no idea. But frankly, I think that's part of the old story. I think you'll find that uh, idea in pretty much all the religions, um, Socrates and Plato, they believed in all these things. And um, I think we have to own up to the fact if we really are part of the cosmos, which I, I love that idea. Um, I also think that we are part and parcel of the elements that are empirically uh, available to us and knowable to us. I understand consciousness to be an emergent property of these highly complex processes of evolution, um, quantum mechanics and so forth and so on. And it's very tempting uh, to imagine that consciousness has a special status and that it can somehow uh, survive uh, brain death. Um, uh, I can't say it doesn't, 
But frankly, I think it's a, a, a very strong human tendency that we've seen over the last 2,000 years at least, where we clutch at something that will survive. And I think we have to consider that in terms of our own personal existential motives. It's to what extent is that just another way of denying death, of somehow um, uh, hoping for something that will enable me, that's me, uh, to keep going. Uh, to me, the whole idea of impermanence, if we take it really seriously, has to uh, take into account the fact that uh, death means that I do not continue in any recognizable shape, form, size, conscious or otherwise. That may indeed be the case. But my own uh, view of this uh, is, to, is essentially agnostic. In other words, I approach death um, with um, a great reverence because death is the ultimate uh, experience that life affords us. And to that extent, I don't know what happens after death. And I think to be able to hold death as a question, to hold impermanence as a question, an existential question, um, is to me more important than positing, uh, theorizing about the existence or the non-existence of consciousness after death. Uh, right. And that, that's how I would read the Buddhist, uh, or at least my rather, <laughs> what you might say, um, heretical view of Buddhism. <laughs> right. Well, Stephen Batchelor, I mean, what, if we think about this, this question of impermanence right now in this tenuous situation, um, how do we approach it, knowing that it seems like the world is changing so much, and I think we're, we're beginning to really kind of glimpse the, the fragility of life and, and questions of permanence seem to be coming up every day? Well, I think if we're really to take the question seriously, um, then we have, to, we have to engage with it uh, as a contemplative uh, uh, discipline or, or meditation uh, rather than just think about it. I mean, it's easy to have all kinds of nice ideas, but uh, the, the changing nat nature of reality impacts us. It impacts us in the sense of who we think we are. It impacts us in our sense of everything we assume about the world will just keep on carrying on the way it always has. And it's in those moments of shock. And I think many people in lockdown, in confinement, uh, are suddenly having their world shaken apart. Uh, suddenly you can't do a bunch of stuff you would otherwise uh, be happily off doing. You're thrown back onto yourself. And when you're thrown back onto yourself, uh, you're thrown back effectively onto your life and your death. You're thrown back onto your mortality. And when I was training as a Tibetan Buddhist monk back in the 1970s, one of the meditations that uh, was most effective, I found, was a, a contemplation of death, in which uh, once or twice a day one would run through three points. You would contemplate the fact that death is the only thing that is certain in the future. Nothing else is certain in our lives. The only thing is uh, certain is that we will die. But again, you know that intellectually, it's, it's true, but to what extent have you internalized that awareness? To what extent do you live with that awareness? When do you live this moment as though your death might be right around the corner? And the second point you meditate on is the fact that although this death is certain, the time of death is completely uncertain. So again, you know that, we all know that, it's no big news, but how do you internalize that awareness in such a way that it actually makes a difference in how you live? Uh, just try to imagine if you really could live each moment thinking this might actually be my last moment, my last day on earth. I suspect that would have a radical 
effect on what you consider to be really important, what your priorities are, what matters most. And once you reflect on the certainty of death and the uncertainty of its time, that leads you also, I feel, almost inevitably, to a deep existential question, which boils down to, if death is certain, its time is uncertain, what do I do? How do I live? What do I do now? It forces you to take your life more seriously. It forces you to get out of your habits of procrastination and putting off the more important things till you've got time, till you retire, da, da, da. But it actually becomes weirdly an, uh, a revelation about the fact that you're alive at all. And I think we forget that. I think by denying death, pretending that we might live after death and so forth and so on, we actually uh, go to sleep in terms of our actual experience of being alive here and now. I think the most extraordinary thing is to be conscious. But that means to be conscious of this world as it engages us through our senses, through our memory, through our plans, through our relationships, through our work, through our art. Um, and I feel that to take impermanence on board and really embed it in the way you experience your, yourself and your life uh, leads to a, a depth of human uh, flourishing, a depth of human um, awareness that becomes a real ground uh, for living your life with greater authenticity uh, and with greater commitment yeah. to what you really value. And, you know, Lita Albuquerque, this, this makes me think a lot about your work, a lot about the themes in your art, and it makes me think of a story about your life. I, I think, I mean, I'm sure we could go back further, but I, I remember that a couple of years ago, in a massive fire in the Santa Monica Mountains, you lost 50 years of artwork, you lost your entire property, everything you had created vanished within 24 hours. I was wondering if you could... <laughs> within half an hour, within 30 minutes. Within 30 minutes. Tell us kind of, you know, in relation to what Stephen's talking about here, I mean, this is something I think that has penetrated your work and your, your consciousness pretty deeply. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it, for me, that kind of consciousness is, is throughout my life, even uh, in utero. I mean, if, if I can be super personal, yeah. uh, my mother attempted to abort me when I was in utero. Uh, and so from the very beginning, I've had this almost like this threat you know of 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 dying embedded in my in my cells and then the, my whole childhood was extremely um embedded in that kind of idea i was put in a catholic convent at the age of 3 uh mm. in carthage in north africa wow and without parents so you know i was uh i did uh, i mean i had god and i had uh the ocean uh, the sea and i had nature and and then we, my mother is from Tunisia, um, and we we left when I was uh, eleven years old, and that was another rupture for me, another death. And I never experienced my father except in lack. Mm -hmm. And so I've had, you know, my life has been about the understanding of that. So it does, it is something that. Uh, does seep into my work. And then the I started out as a painter, but then in the mid-70s, I started doing these impermanent pieces, these ephemeral pieces out in the desert with powder pigments that would get blown by the wind. Mm. And, and it was, you know, very much about 
really about what what that means, you know, and that what was important for me at the time. And that's why what Brian Greene said did throw me off in terms of thought, because what was important to me at the time was what matters is the trace, uh, what remains in your mind. It doesn't have to be material, but that in the mind there is that mark um, or that pattern. What's it like for you when you when you make those kind of pieces of ephemeral art, when you see things kind of blow off into the wind? What's that experience like? The first time it happened, it was not conscious. I was not set to do ephemeral pieces. And, and the wind came and blew the piece, and I thought, oh, my God, what a disaster, until I came back and I saw what I had in my photographs, and I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. Then I started really going into that. And what it, it feels like... Um, I don't have an attachment. I just finished doing a piece in Saudi Arabia where it was two miles long of 99 blue powder pigment circles, uh, different diameters to align to the different brightnesses of the stars above. Mm. And that blew away in the wind. And we had like three tons of powder pigment. It's just, it's like the human life. It's beauty to me. It's about beauty. Mm. It's about beauty and poetry. And that's what matters. And that's and that is is it's it's ephemeral. Yeah, I think that's very beautiful. And um, again, art is so often, particularly when it's commodified in galleries and so forth, it's thought of as something that is achieving, aspiring to some sort of quasi permanence, either as an object which then becomes a valued object, or uh, or simply as something that has become recognised as being a great work and it persists therefore in in human culture, but. Um, I always remember the uh, practice that you find amongst uh, Buddhist monks in Tibet, where they make uh, sand mandalas. They make these incredibly beautiful mandalas on large uh, tables, usually. They're about seven or eight feet in diameter. And they very, very carefully, with little devices they have, they create this highly complicated, very colorful uh, image, uh, very, very finely designed in, in little drops of sand. And then when the whole thing is uh, being completed and when they've done the necessary ceremonies and practices associated with it, they just let it, they throw it into the river, they throw it into, they let it slide off <laughs> and disappear. And uh, that's a, a way of thinking about art that uh, um, really moves me. Because it does show, as you suggested, leader, that the real potency of art lies in the traces that it leaves in our consciousness and in our minds. Oh, and um, right. in my own work in collage, uh, I, I work with found materials that I then glue onto cardstock and, again, form kind of uh, rather formal mosaics. But since I use found materials, rubbish, basically, that's been thrown away, uh, I don't have uh, high-quality pigments. It's cheap commercial prints. The bits of paper and card have often been run over by cars or, or soaked in rain or so on. And as I, let, as I watch them over the months and years that I have them around, uh, they degrade and, and the colours uh, fade. Uh, and the whole thing right. is kind of a piece of art that's in movement. And at one point, I don't know when and I don't know which form that will then take, uh, it will probably fade to virtually nothing. So it's a kind of a, uh, it, it, it is art in motion, as it were. It's art in movement. It's art that's somehow slipping away from your grasp, uh, much in the same way right. as the sand mandalas disappear into the water. And there's something really beautiful about that. There's something 
Um, I, I remember when, when the wind came, so we had these huge windstorms. I, I honestly had not expected such windstorms in the, the Saudi Arabian desert. I'm really interested in the notion of the elements expressing themselves, right? So the wind, it's, it's allowing the wind to create, allowing light to create, allowing uh, water because we are part of, of all of that. And to, again, to isolate ourselves from the environment, whether it's through our expression or through how we live our lives, I think it's what's made us come to where we're at today. And, and I think the pandemic has, like you said, Jonathan, that it really has brought people to have to question and to look within. Uh, I see there's tremendous amount of people meditating. And um, I mean, for us as artists, you know, this is our life. I mean, this is what we do. We are in isolation, not completely, obviously, because um, inspiration comes from inspiring, right? Uh, Taking in the breath, inhaling breath. Without inhaling breath, there is no exhalation. So we do have to have the outer world. But I think it has brought people down to their knees in a way, some with terror, which I certainly understand, uh, and others with um, understanding that that's, that's where they want to go, where, where they're being led to go, which is the inner life. And I thought what was beautiful about what Brian Green talked about at the end was how he said about that the role of the physicist is to eliminate, not just to eliminate uh, what is, but to be part of the full story, the, the human story, which is to melt together the objective and subjective story. When he talked about mm. his experience mm-hmm. with the Dalai Lama and how the Dalai Lama told him, yes, we need to follow you. We take the lead from you. What, what you're finding out in the, in the um, objective world. But then what has to happen is the subjective does have to come in. And that's a question mark. I think that's that, com- that, that meeting point between the objective and subjective is also the human. And, and that's, mm-hmm. that's where we, we pivot around. Well, as we begin to wrap this conversation up, I, I want to end with this question of how we build meaning amid change. You know, how, how we construct value knowing that perhaps all we have is the here and now, which I think has really come into focus with this pandemic. So, Lita, as an artist, how would you answer this? Well, I think you, you hit it on the nail, and so did, so did Brian, in terms of that all we have really is the now. And, and as an artist, uh, I've been called by one of my colleagues the queen of now, uh, in that I, I, I always talk about um, the idea of taking the present moment through the time-space continuum. And what I mean by that is I just focus on the time and date that this is the year 2020 in the city of Malibu, in the state of California, in the country of the United mm. States of America, in the Northern Hemisphere, and planet Earth, in the solar yeah. system that's in Orion's, uh, the minor arm of Orion's arm in the Milky Way galaxy, next to the Virgo cluster galaxy, next to the super great cluster, next to the Nanakea cluster. And then I take a moment and then go back down and then by then it's 10:44 a.m. and to presence <laughs> the moment i think that and i think that's the greatest buddhist traditions of really presencing the moment and to teach people how to do that and um um it's that's that's what comes to mind 
Yeah, that's beautiful. Stephen, I want to I want to kind of pose the same thing to you. Uh, amid instability, how do we build on what we have now? Well, first of all, I think we need to be able to uh, find within ourselves a stability and a stability yeah. that uh, we can find in many ways through art, through meditation and so forth and so on. And clearly, the, the, the challenge is how do I respond to this situation that's unfolding, both personally as part of a community? Uh, how do I respond to that? And the, 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 the roots of that responsiveness uh, are effectively the imagination, uh, whether or not we think in terms of art, is how can I picture to myself the kind of person I would seek to be, the kind of community I would seek to create, the kind of world I would try to inhabit. And so although the central, the, the, the present moment is, is the crucible in which this uh, challenge can be faced, it cannot be isolated from what has gone before and what is to come. Uh, if we are to respond to something, we're in a way projecting ourselves already into a time that is not yet here, uh, the future. Um, I feel that there is a, a, a passion uh, that might be stirred within the contemplative moment, but I think it achieves meaning and value by creating forms, discourses, uh, structures, ways of life uh, that will hopefully come to flourish at a time maybe long after you and I and uh, Lida have gone. Uh, so I think we must be careful with this present momentism, which I think is an incredibly useful corrective to our obsessions about the future and the past. But at the same time, we don't want to become, in a sense, sort of just solipsistically locked into some hypothetical now. Uh, there is really no present moment. You can never see it or spot it. It is incredibly elusive and ephemeral. And it is, in a way, mm -hmm. simply a, a manner of speaking that allows us to locate ourselves within the context of time. Uh, past time, back to the Big Bang, future time, into whatever the world and the universe may hold in store for us. Uh, so the present moment I think of really as a kind of a fulcrum, as a kind of a, a point of stability in the midst of instability, uh, a point of courage uh, in the surroundings of, of fear and uncertainty that ena enables us to act, enables us to do something that will have, hopefully, a positive outcome. Lita Albuquerque, thanks again for your time today. Thank you. And Stephen Batchelor, thank you for connecting with us all the way from France. We appreciate the time. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's all for today. You've been listening to KCRW's Foxhole. You can learn more about the show at kcrw.com foxhole or download the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and we'll see you next week.